First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They are warm, breathable, silent, and odor resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, all of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com. Hey y'all, I'm KC. And I'm Tyler. And this is the Elk Hunting Series from the Element Podcast. If you want to get on Elk, it helps to hang with dudes that know Elk. And that ain't us, but luckily the dudes that know Elk have cell phones and we call them up. So whether you're a veteran of September or you're just cutting your ivories in the Elk Woods, you're going to hear something here that'll help you get the full draw this fall. If you find this podcast helpful, poke that subscribe button and go check out our Elk Hunting playlist on YouTube. Now let's rock and roll! All right, guys, on the phone today, we have got Jay Scott with Jay Scott Outdoors. Jay, what is happening, man? How are you guys? I'm happy to be here. Uh, for sure, it's kind of crazy times, but I'm um, happy to be on the phone with you guys to talk a little elk hunting for sure. Yeah, man, yeah. awesome. We appreciate it. We always like to talk elk hunting this time of year. Uh, like I said, it is crazy. Um, what is even crazier, honestly, is how the draw statistics and OTC stuff is going to go this year because – it seems like it's going to be a crazy year in the Elkwoods with people everywhere and people not drawing when they thought they should have drawn. Did you see that too? You know, um, I didn't dig into it probably as much as I should have, but I do know with, you know, people feeling all cooped up, I think that there's going to be a bunch of people in the OTC woods and the different states for sure uh, where they can just buy a tag and get out there and go hunt. Um, so, you know, I, I think definitely, you know, I think we saw a little bit of this in Turkey season across the U S where, um, you know, especially in the Southeast, there were way more turkeys, uh, days in the field, a lot of pressure on those turkeys. So it's going to, I think it's going to be pretty much similar thing, uh, with the elk hunting. I think a lot of guys, some of the big trips, you know, maybe to the Northwest territories or Alaska or, you know, some of the bigger sheep hunt type trips maybe got, um, you know, delayed and postponed till next year. And so I think a lot of people are going to go either archery deer hunting or archery elk hunting and just try and get in the woods for sure. So I think it's something that people need to kind of keep in mind and consider when maybe they're considering their time frame, uh, when they're going to go hunt and just make sure that they understand that, you know, probably the weekends are going to get uh, a lot of pressure. And so they might want to focus a little bit more, you know, during the week and, um, you know, position themselves where maybe the pressure uh, will work to their advantage and they can take advantage of, you know, some of those days when there's not as many hunters in the field. Yeah, yeah, for sure. What are you noticing out there? Uh, you're in Colorado uh, for your summer, I would imagine, and uh, doing a lot of fishing from what I see on Instagram. Are you noticing more or less people than normal? You know, as far as fishing, it pretty much seems um, like the same. Uh, I will tell you, it seems like the guide trips 
uh, where, you know, you see a guy rowing and, and a fisherman in the front, fisherman in the back. It seems like those overall, you know, I've been over to Utah uh, fishing at the green and, you know, kind of fishing all over here in Colorado. But it seems like those guide trips are down. Um, but it seems like, you know, the, the everyday trips uh, from the DIY guy um, seems every bit as much pressure as normal. Um, you know, interesting here in Colorado, as much as uh, as well as a lot of the southwest is we're got a really dry uh, summer monsoon. You know, the, the monsoons have really not uh, come yet. And uh, it's been really, really dry. I got here after my Gould's turkey hunts down in Mexico about May 15th. My wife and I uh, spend pretty much the winters in in uh, uh, Arizona, in that Scottsdale Paradise Valley area. And then we come up here in the uh, Roaring Fork Valley uh, as soon as I get done with those turkey hunts in Mexico. And got here about May 15th. And um, you know, that didn't have a very big snowpack year and it seemed like that a lot of the snow had already melted, um, had kind of a, a, a warm late April, early May. And, um, you know, the, 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 all the rivers are what I would say at, at right now, you know, July 15th, they're probably what they normally are flow wise, August 15th. So mm, mm. we're in desperate need of water and, um, you know, a lot of the rivers that I float are getting close to possibly being where they're not going to be floatable here much more than about a week. So, um, yeah, definitely some monsoon rains would help uh, a lot of that, as well as, you know, I was over at the Odd Six Ranch, uh, you know, checking trail cameras and putting up a bunch of new trail cameras. And it's really, really dry over there as well. And that's about four hours away. And um, just Colorado in general is, is very, very dry right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's much different year than last year. You know, I was up there in the summer last year and then we hunted New Mexico for the fall and, uh, you know, there was still snow, uh, late July, uh, you know, at like 9,500 foot, there was still snow drifts, you know, it was a crazy, you know, snow year last year. And it just seems like, you know, it's almost it's like the exact opposite. Yeah. yeah. The ebb and flow you know, is last harder. Year, Last year, all the rivers um, that I fish here, uh, kind of in central Colorado, to be honest with you, a lot of them weren't even really fishable where, you know, the dry flight pockets were open up on the banks until about the 15th of July. Um, now we're looking at almost kind of being shut down here on the 15th of July. So it's, it's just amazing to see two totally different years. One of the interesting things that uh, I saw happen in 18 and then in 19 uh, over there at the Ot Six Ranch, where I'm the hunt manager, is uh, actually in 18 when we had really dry conditions, very similar to this this year we we're having. It seemed like our antler growth was actually better, um, which is kind of totally different than what I'm used to in Arizona. And then last year, with having such a big uh, winter snowfall year, but even more than that, a big uh, spring uh, snow, and 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 it stayed cold for so long. Um, I think those bulls did not do as well last year and the antlers were actually smaller on, you know, I have a, have a good sense of it because we're able to um, run, you know, 150 or so trail cameras and have bulls that we watch year after year on the Ot six and can watch their antler grow from one year to another. And actually most of the bulls across the board were better in the uh, fall of 2018 than they were last year in the fall of 2019. And the only thing that I can, 
attribute that to is the fact that those bulls um, on that really wet, cold, you know, big moisture year last year, they didn't get started on green feed early enough just because it was still so cold and it didn't green up. Whereas the year before uh, in 18, we had, you know, very dry conditions, but uh, enough moisture in the ground that, you know, the green grass came early and those bulls were able to get on that feed. And it comes down to a number of, you know, antler growing days and I think if they can get on green feed early enough, um, I, I just think this year's probably going to be another good antler growth. It's you know, a little too early to tell. A lot of the bigger bulls were, you know, kind of finished out, but um, some of my cameras weren't running and st- such. So I don't have a big enough sampling here in another couple of weeks when, when I get to see a, a broader sampling of a bunch of bulls that I know. Um, I'll be able to see if my conclusion uh, was correct, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, for those that are looking at hunting uh, Colorado, uh, I think it's going to be a good elk uh, antler growth year. And, um, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Definitely in Arizona, uh, we had we had a really good uh, winter moisture uh, in Arizona. And so our, uh, the elk antlers in Arizona should be phenomenal. Mm-hmm. You know, in the whitetail world, there are some um, studies that actually show kind of a similar thing to what you're talking about where – um, you know, in a, in a, people always talk about spring rains and these timely rains and that kind of thing. And of course, timely rains are, are a little bit different than just overall rainfall, but, um, that when the landscape is a bit stressed, um, that a deer will a lot of times pick the most nutritionally beneficial, uh, forbs and, and different brows and that kind of thing. Sure. So, um, you know, they, when they know it's kind of like, I think about it this way. I used to tour in a band for about 10 years and we, um, you know, when we would stop late at night, um, in the middle of the night at a convenience store, <laughs> I really wasn't thinking about like, um, you know, can I get th- some lettuce or something like right. that? You know, I was like, okay, yeah, what's the cheapest thing? And Twinkies That's and exactly right. Cupcakes. Like things that are going to fill my stomach up for $2 or less. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So I get like chocolate milk and Pop-Tarts because Pop-Tarts are like 79 cents, you know? Yeah. And you know that Pop-Tarts can stay on the shelf for like 40 years and they, they never, uh, disintegrate or they break down that could <laughs> they're still in my stomach right <laughs> they're still yeah, in my that's stomach right. that's why we're still full <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's uh it's I, I try not to eat too many anymore but it's hard to beat a pop tart at about 8 30 in the morning in a deer stand sometimes <laughs> i hear you my favorite is the cinnamon uh cinnamon flavored and uh, i like to pull all the crust off that doesn't have any of the cinnamon <laughs> sugar on it throw that away and eat the <laughs> yeah that's what you give the chipmunks yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny you know i it's changing subject real fast uh, but i totally agree with you on the fact that you know i think we learn a lot from our whitetail um friends and you know watching whitetail deer and it's probably the most monitored animal in mm-hmm. in in the united states but I, I think you're dead on um something that just popped into my mind was a couple years ago you guys had done a video down in the gunnison gorge i think it was both of you where you hiked in and mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Um, and caught some fish uh, on salmon flies, and I still remember that video. That that was a that was a cool video. Interesting. Uh, the water in the Gunnison this year was so low. Um, it's the first year in a handful of years that I didn't go do my normal um, trips, salmon fly trips, and and such uh, floating down there just because the water was only like at 450 cfs and. Mm. A lot of the guide boats kind of were stacked on top of each other, and and it was just a pretty fast hatch because of the 
um, water temperature. You know, when, when that water is normally up, you know, 1,000 or 1,200 CFS, the water stays a lot colder. Mm-hmm. And so that, that hatch moves a lot slower. This year it just blew through the canyon um, really, really fast because of, you know, warm water temperatures mm-hmm. compared to a normal year where they have twice as much volume of water. Um, and so a lot of uh, my buddies were all reporting that those salmon flies were were normally they kind of progress and kind of move upstream. Uh, they just kind of were blowing up all over the river and then they were just done. Um, so, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, I still love watching that video you guys did. You did a really good job. <laughs> Thanks, on that. Man. Thanks, Jay. That means a lot, man. That was uh, yeah. probably one of the hardest things to actually, you know, do production on, but also one of the most fun thing videos that Tyler and I have ever met. You know, you can imagine packing 70 pounds of camera gear to the bottom <laughs> of the, <laughs> the Gunnison Gorge. You know, oh, yeah. it, it was it was pretty it was pretty nuts, but a lot of fun. Uh, so on that, you know, low water side of things, um, is that something where, you know, a lot of times uh, we think about elk and public land being kind of going hand in hand. Uh, you manage a, a very large piece of private land. Um, are elk that are, you know, managed privately affected by water as much? Or since y'all, you know, really monitor your tanks and that sort of thing, do you feel like elk uh, aren't as stressed when in low water situations? Yeah, I mean, I think on situations where you've got good access to water, whether it be, you know, creeks or tanks or, or things like that, um, as far as drinking water, I think... Um, you know, I think a lot of these private ranches do a really good job of keeping the wildlife into the water. I think more than anything, when you start talking about dry conditions in Colorado, it's not necessarily like dry conditions in Arizona. When we have dry conditions in Arizona, literally like all of the, the dirt, dirt tanks are dry, the trick tanks are dry, the, the Arizona Elk Society actually has to get a water truck and start hauling water to the trick tanks. Colorado, on the other hand, doesn't, even in dry years, doesn't face that, you know, they still have a lot of perennial streams, a lot of moving water, uh, you know, creeks that still have water flowing in them. Granted, it may not be flowing as much as normal, uh, but as far as elk being able to get a drink, they definitely still, across most of the landscape in Colorado, have a chance to definitely get drinking water. Mm -hmm. I think when you talk about dry years, you talk about more about, you know, there's the grass isn't really growing and the nutrients in the soil and and what they're eating isn't as good, Um, you know, and and that's more of a concern than, say, drinking water, whereas in, in Arizona... Uh, in New Mexico, for that matter, I mean, there are actually times when, you know, in Unit 9 in Arizona, they're actually hauling water and there's elk, there's bulls standing at the, like, the drinker waiting for the water because, it's, Man. you know, so far, few and far between. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's where it becomes, a you know, a problem for sure if, if they can't get enough water to drink. But definitely, usually not the case in Colorado. Yeah. Is that is that, like... Do you look at that and think, you know, maybe elk shouldn't be on that landscape? You know, like well, when we talk it's about definitely. I mean, it's definitely something that if 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 you know a lot of years when it's really dry in Arizona, if man wouldn't if man didn't step in, uh, that they would either have to really move and congregate somewhere else. Um, or that, you know, they could face the, you know, they could face dehydration. They could face where they just can't get a drink of water. Um, and, and I would say it's, it's, it's not super common. 
Um, and I would say that as well, I think the Arizona Elk Society does a great job of trying to keep water widespread with the fear uh, a lot of times when there's not a lot of water and sources, you get those elk congregated up, you can get disease and, and uh, you can get predation. You know, when every animal within a five-mile radius has to water in one spot, it becomes pretty easy picking for the, you know, for the predators. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's more of a concern. Um but yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things like up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in the elk refuge. And, um, you know, if, if they didn't supplement feed those elk, a lot of times would they die off? The, the answer is probably yes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it is, an, it is an interesting role that man plays. Um, but I like to think that overall we do a pretty good job of trying to conserve and protect uh, the animals that we love to hunt out there. And I I am one of these believers that I think there's times when man needs to step in and, and do the best they can to kind of help the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not one so much to just say, I'll oh, just let them do whatever they're going to do. And if they make it, they make it. If they don't, they don't. Well, it's a pretty easy solution to, you know, supplement them with some water. And in the, in the, in the case of the elk in Jackson hole, you know, supplement them with, with a little bit of feed to get them through a couple of, you know, a couple of weeks of those rough winters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they are animals that we all love to see out on the landscape. Yeah, for sure. we just sure. talked about that with uh, another buddy of ours, um, Adam Keith, who more whitetail oriented guy. But we were having this discussion on like, um, you know, what d- the dominion of man is exactly and, and how that looks and uh, how it's not just like dominating the landscape. It's uh, it's to take God's creation and uh, help it be as the best that a man yeah. can make it you Have know what i mean flourish. Yeah. sure so yeah sure and i i think overall i think a lot of the conservation organizations that are around do a really good job and you know i think it's um we're in a weird time right now with a lot of these you know i know the national wild turkey federation although the turkeys have you know really flourished across uh, the country uh you know this covid19 has really hurt the the fundraising uh, you know a lot of the spring uh, fundraisers were closed and, um, you know, it's, it's tough to see a lot of these organizations, um, really suffering, uh, for funds and revenue that, you know, that didn't come in. Um, so everybody that's listening, you know, kind of keep that in mind. If, you know, if you're Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or if you're Wild Sheep Foundation or, uh, you know, um, Rocky Mountain Goat, Turkey, whatever it may be, um, you know, maybe maybe send them an extra 50 bucks or something and because and, they're, they're really in need right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. And I think that one of the things that is good about people being stir-crazy and wanting to go hunting is that you will see an uptick in license sales and habitat stamps and all that. So maybe that'll uh, even, uh, you know, the, not the NGOs will benefit from that, but at least, you know, the wildlife departments and stuff across the U.S. will at least benefit from, you know, high tag sales and whatnot. So that For side sure. of conservation will be kind of preserved through the whole uh, the whole deal there. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about, like, what you do at the Ot 6? Yeah, so the Ot 6 is a really interesting um, situation. A friend of mine in 2017 uh, lives in Texas had told me that he'd been wanting, him and his wife wanted to purchase a, a ranch and and uh, really love elk and mule deer and and um, they ended up buying a ranch uh, in kind of south uh, central Colorado uh, and it's it's approximately fifty thousand acres 
and they pulled the majority of the cattle off of the property and wanted to really make it as much of an elk uh, preserve and sanctuary as possible. And when I say preserve sanctuary, just basically giving those elk free reign to, to range the property and, and, you know, feed and, and do their thing. And, um, you know, so, so they asked me in 2017, uh, they didn't end up purchasing it until mid-September, asked me to kind of step in on October and uh, come kind of take inventory at the ranch and see what kind of elk are there and uh, numbers of elk, ages of elk, size of elk, and um, kind of, you know, spend a month uh, running trail cameras and glassing and, and just seeing what they have. And then um, so that, uh, you know, kind of has transformed on the hunt manager over there. And, and uh, my friends all give me a hard time because we don't do many hunts. So they say I'm a <laughs> hunt manager of a place that doesn't hunt. But um, <laughs> we, we do shoot a few elk uh, every year. And um, I've got a, a, a kid, uh, Hunter Meekum. Uh, he's he's in his mid-20s. He works with me over there. And, and uh, we basically run about 150 or so trail cameras. Uh, we glass morning and evenings, video, photograph, and just kind of keep tabs on uh, the wildlife on the ranch. And, you know, we've got a good population of elk and uh, some mule deer, lots of bears, turkey, uh, mountain lion. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's just a really neat, uh, opportunity for someone like myself who, you know, guided in Arizona for 20 years in the biggest bull state in the country and, you know, really got a good feel of public land hunting and guiding on public land. And, um, you know, now getting to just monitor and, and witness these elk in their, you know, natural environment, doing their thing. Uh, rutting, you know, rutting and chasing cows. Uh, I'm only there kind of during the rut. So from about September 1 uh, till about mid-October full-time. Uh, and we're out every single day, morning and evening. And um, yeah, when we're not uh, glassing at, at prime time, we're checking trail cameras during the day. And, um, you know, we, we've got an Instagram page, Odd Six Ranch. And you know, just try and post mainly pictures of elk uh, doing their thing. So yeah. it, it's 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 a lot of fun. You get to, mm -hmm. you know, they bugle really good and and um, get a lot of great video and a lot of great photos for sure. Yeah, for sure, man. And it's a lot of fun just to watch what y'all have going on down there. I follow that out six page, and uh, it's just cool to see giant bulls and elk doing what they do. And I believe uh, last year y'all took one of your like well known bulls off of that place, didn't you? Yeah, so in 18, we had a bull um, show up that we actually did not see. Hunter thought maybe he might have seen him in 17 uh, in mid-October, uh, but then we really didn't. He didn't show up. Uh, we didn't really start seeing him until the fall of 18, and that was the, the quote-unquote drought year, and he grew a heck of a set of antlers, um, and we ended up a year later harvesting them uh, last season but you know it was really fun in 18 um to get to spend probably 30 days with that bull and get lots of video and lots of trail cam photos and just kind of watch them and you know he was probably pushing close to 400 inches that year in mm -hmm. in 2018 and you know a lot of people ask me how big i thought he was well my experience is you know, 20 years is Arizona elk, some of the biggest elk in the world. But, you know, being in Colorado, I just couldn't get over the fact that, you know, that bull could potentially be mid 390s or, or better. And, 
you know, so I, I kind of said, you know, 370s, 380, you know, and to make a long story short, uh, in last year in the fall of 2019, our expectations were pretty high to see what that bull would do. And he actually, uh, um, did not, he had two devil points off his eye guards that he didn't grow. Um, and he had a little, uh, G six on, on, I forget which side, but on one of his sides and didn't grow. And he just was kind of overall in the back a little bit smaller. I think he probably lost probably at least 15 inches or so. Hmm. Uh, when, when you compare the rack, the video, you know, the video and pictures from, from the year before, uh, I think he was probably in that 395 to 400 range. He went, the owner's wife ended up telling him last year, uh, and we knew that he was a little bit smaller, uh, but it was still one of those bulls that, you know, he's just a heck of a bull. And I think he ended up going like 384 or something like that. Mm. Uh, but just a beautiful, typical six. And, um, yeah, it was, it was bittersweet because, you know, you spend enough time around watching and, you know, in the season of 18, every morning, once we started getting pictures of that bull, it was like, where's Creed and, you know, how, how, where can we go to see him? And, you know, he would move around the ranch and just trying to keep up with them. And, um, then the anticipation into 2019 season was super high. You know, is he going to blow up, you know, and be over 400 and, um, you know, are those extra points going to blow up? And, and it turned out he just went clean, straight, typical six, but, um, it was still, uh, quite exciting trying to kind of position and get ourselves in the right spot to uh, see him every day. Yeah, that's cool. Did you, uh, now I understand, you know, your years and years of, of outfitting and guiding, you probably did some of this, uh, but that probably really, you know, your position at Odd Six has really allowed you to hone in on situations like that. Did you learn more about like bull pattern movements and whatnot because you were able to really follow that distinct bull around on, on the property that much, or is that something that you kind of have, have seen and learned throughout your years? Yeah, I would say 20 years of guiding elk on in Arizona on public land uh, with lots of competition, you know, taught me a lot of things about positioning and, and taught me about glassing and, and being up on a high point and, you know, trying to fight the urge to get, you know, hundred yards from them and get that really, really good video, but, you know, stay away <laughs> from them a little bit, stay up high and, and get where you can try and um, see him more times than not. Cause a lot of times with these bulls, if you dive down in the trees with them, you know, you're either going to bump them or, you know, you may get that, you know, once in a lifetime footage, but, you know, with all of the public land hunting, you know, and guiding that I've done in Arizona, whether it be elk or coos deer, or bighorn sheep, you know, whatever it may be, um, I've learned to really get into kind of a monitoring stage and, and kind of get where, hey, I want to get where I'm not going to um, bump them or disturb them, but where I can always see them, I can see where he comes out, where he's rutting around, and then where he goes into the trees, and then. You know, a lot of times some of the best footage that we get um, is is in the evening because we've spent the morning, you know, watching exactly where him and his cows or other bulls are, you know, going into the trees, which then sets us up for a great spot to be in the afternoon and move our position a little bit where we're going to be right on top of them when they come out of the trees. Because, you know, a lot of times, unless elk are bumped, a lot of times wherever they go in the trees, uh, they're going to come out that afternoon in that similar spot. And so, um, you know, I'm a firm believer of glassing, uh, you know, off a tripod and, and you know, long-range glassing and, and letting the elk or whatever animal I'm pursuing, I don't want them to ever know I'm there until till I'm killing them. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so, it, you know, it, you have to fight the urge, whatever animal you're hunting, you have to fight the urge to get close to them until the time's right. And you up your percentage of being able to get them. And I, I don't think it's any different. You know, if I lived in the Midwest, I'd be, you know, probably doing the same thing with whitetails. But, you know, the, the, the least interference you can have with animals, the better chance you have when you go to put the press on them. Uh, that, you know, you're going to be successful by, by just staying away from them and learning everything you can about their movements. And, and, you know, if they go in this group of trees, they're going to come out of this group of trees. If they, if they go, you know, north, they're going to come out in this completely different meadow and just trying to understand their pattern and what they like to do. And, and, you know, being able to, being able to put yourself in the right position is, is huge. Yeah, for sure. I'm a firm believer in being efficient. Um, whether fishing or whatever I'm doing, I try and be as efficient as I possibly can. That's mm-hmm. why he's a streamer guy. <laughs> <laughs> I like to rip lips for sure with streamers. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you've, you have learned a lot by guiding on public land in, you know, Arizona for 20 years. And, um, you know, that, that, doesn't come easy. That knowledge that you've gained doesn't come easy. And I think, you know, there's probably a lot of guys that are pretty hesitant to share that knowledge, um, when, or whatever knowledge they might've, they might've gained throughout their years of hunting and that kind of thing. And so, you know, like as a guide or an outfitter, how much, how much teaching are you doing and how much are you being reserved and, um, allowing somebody to learn or just reserving it because you don't want somebody to come back in there and hunt your spot or whatever. Like how much do you see that happen? Well, I, you know, um, one thing I try and do with my own podcast that I have is, you know, almost, uh, 700 episodes now. I, I, I just try and basically anything that I know, I try and pass on and, and try and help people. And I'm, you know, answering, you know, 150 to 200 direct messages a week and, um, you know, emails and, and trying to help people as much as I can. The, the, the biggest thing that I can do, uh, hunting and fishing in the outdoors has given me so much to be able to give back and to help other people. That's what I live for. Um, you know, with that being said, I think it's important, uh, to be aware as a guide, uh, and, and even a DIY guy, the last thing you want to do with your fellow sportsmen is be, you know, specifically giving up spots and giving up areas that may affect someone else's hunt. If it's my spot and I give it up, then I think I have the right to give that up if it's my spot and, and I found it and I don't ever see anybody else in there. But, um, I do, and I have tried for many, many years to be very um, aware of other people's quote-unquote honey holes and spots and, you know, try and be respectful of, of not giving secrets where specifically some spot that you can go sit on a rock and, you know, see a 200-inch mule deer buck every, every time you go out. If, you know, if someone tells me about something like that, the last thing I want to do is, is break that trust. Sure. Um, so I always keep that in the back of my mind. But as far as you know, trying to help, um, trying to give the basis of my podcast is trying to give as much information and education, uh, with the guests that I have on and try and pick their brain and, and give as much info to fellow sportsmen as I can. And that's kind of what I've built my whole, 
um, you know, platform of my podcast and Instagram on as I'm, I'm constantly learning myself and I love to pass on all the different things that I've learned. And the best message I can get from anyone is, Hey, that tip you gave on your podcast or that tip you gave on your Instagram has helped me, you know, kill this five by five bull elk with my bow. And I just wanted to tell you, thanks. That to me is the ultimate. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the ultimate reward. And that's what, uh, you know, my podcast started in 2015 and, and, uh, you know, it's been going a long time and that's what drives it every day. That's what motivates me every day is to help people out there for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you helped me catch a like 21 inch rainbow last fall, so I really appreciate that. Gave me a little tip, um, but uh, yeah, I really do appreciate your podcast, man. It's something I listen to uh, every year. Uh, you know, and uh, there's always stuff that's not really you know my game, like the bighorn stuff or whatever. But there's always things that are just really, really uh, informational, and I think that's what you, you do a great job of with your guests is getting guys who really know what's going on, and that's why we want to talk to you because you are the compilation of all of those. So <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Um, so I think that there's a large sector of the hunting population out there that kind of gets overlooked, especially when you're talking about the Western game. Um, the cool hot topic thing nowadays is, you know, these, these, these popping words like public land and OTC, DIY. DIY, yeah, all that stuff. But quite honestly, for a large sector of people, that's probably kind of intimidating and maybe even not really achievable uh, depending on, you know, physical requirements and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, and now I'll be candid, not really something I know that much about, but the, the outfitter world is really a great tool for a lot of people. So that's something that you know a ton about. So we kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. You know, uh, let me just f- first start by saying, um, what type of person should consider an outfitter when it comes to going on a Western hunt? Well, before I answer that, I, I think I'd like to say that some some out some of the best hunters I know mm-hmm. and some of the best fishermen I know are outfitters. They're guides. They're guys that do it every day. They're guides. They're guys that really throw away you know opportunities to to have corporate jobs and make really really good money. And they do what they love. And whether it be guiding fishermen or guiding hunters. Um, some, some of the very best hunters and fishermen I know are guides. I want to say that first and foremost, but to answer your question, I think, you know, I know what you mean when you talk about DIY and public land and, you know, you've got all these, you know, this group and that group and this group doesn't like this group and that group, you know, it's just, it's, it's all nonsense to me. We're all hunters. Uh, we all like to feel the wiggle of the rod tip and we all like to see, you know, we all like to eat whatever we're going to shoot and have that sport of, of hunting. Um, so we're all in this together. Uh, but you know, the reality is, uh, the, the guy that might look at getting an outfitter is someone that, um, maybe skill wise isn't as good. And then there's some guys that hire guides that are some of the best hunters I know. So they want to hire other people that are like-minded and that know what they're doing to put them in a, you know, the best chance they can to succeed. I know a lot of guys that only have so much time and they want to be efficient with their time and they want to learn and they want to be in position to be able to harvest a big mule deer buck or a big uh, bull elk, or, you know, at least get into bulls that are bugling. And so, 
you know, it's one of those things that, you know, with social media and, and stuff, one of the negative things is you kind of compartmentalize and you get these groups that are, you know, this group and that group and, and you, you know, you get bitterness and you get all this different stuff going on. And, and, you know, I try and stay away from a lot of that nonsense and, you know, just encourage guys that, you know, if you haven't had any success for the last five years and you've, you know, only heard one elk bugle in, in those five years, and you've never even had a bull elk inside of 50 yards, you know, you might want to talk about um, hiring a guide or hiring an outfitter to be able to put you in position to potentially succeed. And, um, you know, and that's, that's one thing. If you hire an outfitter to take you fishing, a lot of times they're going to know the best flies to use. They're no, they're going to know when to switch from one fly to another because of something that's happened, whether it be water temperature or condition or, you know, potentially, uh, if you're high country mule deer hunting that, you know, the guy knows exactly where you need to sit and when you need to move and okay, in the afternoon, we need to be over here in the mornings, we're going to glass in and, you know, having a totally different strategy. And, you know, I would encourage guys to consider, um, going with some of these great hunters and guides, uh, and, and learning. And then, you know, once they've done that for a year or two and, or for five or, you know, one hunt, uh, a lot of times you can learn enough on one hunt that you kind of get it figured out. The reality is we're all trying to be successful and we're all trying to have fun at what we're doing. So why not increase your odds of, of efficiency and success by, you know, learning from someone that, that, that gets into, you know, whether it be elk, deer, sheep, fish, you know, whatever. Um, and, and that's one thing I tell people a lot is, you know, the 20 years of guiding in Arizona, um, you know, one thing that's made me a pretty good elk caller is because of opportunity and, and the amount of time that I've sat and listened to elk calling. Well, if you're a guy that's been for three, four, five years and you're, you know, you love elk calling, but you've never had an interaction with an elk, you're never going to get better and you're never going to learn. Um, I, I lived in the greatest elk state uh, in the country in Arizona and spent, you know, 20 years in a row, the month of September, never took a day off and basically monitored elk for 20 years for 30 days straight. And it got me a lot of at-bats and those at-bats made me know when to call, when not to call, you know, when to stalk, when to sneak, when to cow call, when to bugle. And it's circumstantial because of all the opportunities um, it, it made me better at what, what I do. And so that's kind of my pitch out there for people that are maybe considering using a guide or an outfitter is, you know, consider someone that's had a lot of interactions and they're going to be able to get you in to good situations where you have a chance to succeed. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of guys, you know, a lot of guys want to think of this, uh, the guy that goes on the outfitted trip as being what KC likes to call a big hunter and not necessarily a guy that hunts a lot, but a guy that's a pretty big dude and needs somebody to help him get around the mountains, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, I, you know, to me, when you're starting out, like what, there's not a better way to, to, uh, get a jump start into elk hunting than to learn a little bit from an outfitter and then kind of take what you learn and morph it into your system and, and work that that way on the OTC, you know, lands and that kind of thing throughout. And, and there's a couple of things that, you know, as you were talking there, I was thinking that are, you know, important parts. People like to talk about um, the the hunt is as big of a part of it as actually pulling the trigger. And let's not kid ourselves. Pulling the trigger is really fun. You know what I mean? Like that is 
that's the most climatic part that there is. That's the most, you know, exciting moment of the trip is actually pulling unless you get attacked by a grizzly or something, you know, that'd be pretty exciting. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? And same thing, like you said, you like to feel the wiggle of the rod. Um, I went on a, um, a trip and Casey tried to give me as much information as he could down to the bay here in Texas, uh, in March and tried to catch fish. And I did not feel the wiggle of the rod at all. Luckily there was crabs to be caught. Um, but then recently, a couple weeks ago, uh, my dad wanted to pay for us to go out on the bay with a, a guide and me and my son and my dad went and we caught a limit of flounder and it was a blast. You know what I mean? And I didn't feel bad about the fact that I couldn't figure out flounder at all, you know? And so I think there's, there's that, there's also, you know, there's a lot of guys that I talk to that have, um, they, they're like, man, you know, I want to go elk hunting out West, but I can't find anybody to go with me. I just don't know anybody that wants to hunt with me. And it's like, you know, a big part of the hunt is, is the camaraderie and that kind of thing for a lot of dudes. And a guide typically is pretty good at that. You know, guys that have that guide can gab a little bit, you know, a lot of times. And so they're a fun guy to learn, learn from. They're, they're a person to hunt with and to enjoy a hunt with. And I've been on a few of these hunts as a video man for sheep and stuff like that. And, um, you know, by the end of the trip, I can tell the hunter and the guide have a pretty unique connection and, and a friendship that uh, can at least last through social media for a long time, you know. So for sure. um, there's a lot of benefits to it, you know, in my opinion. And I think um, if nothing else, just learning, you know, from from a guide on your first trip can really get you to the point where maybe you get a shot at a bull every three or four years as opposed to going five or six or seven without you know, getting a shot. So, um, there's just, to me, there's a lot of benefits, but I, I guess for me, there's another thing that you hear about, especially, uh, as being, being a Texan is, um, you get some bad experiences, people that are talking about, uh, their bad experiences on forums and that kind of thing with particular guides and outfits that are run. How do you, how do you avoid that? You know, if you're going for your first time, and, you know, say that that money is a, is a pretty big leap of faith for you to, to put down 3500 or $5,000 or whatever it might be. How do, you, how do you assure yourself that you're picking a dude that's going to give you a good shot and also a good experience? Well, I think one of the things, like anything else, a lot of the bad experiences that we all have heard about and hear about every year, honestly, are those situations where guys have tried to, you know, cut corners and guys have hired guys that are the, at the cheapest of, the, uh, you know, and I'm a firm believer of this, the, the, the least expensive guide a lot of times is not the best guide. Mm -hmm. um, that yeah. doesn't mean the most expensive guide is the best, but a lot of times, you know, somewhere in the middle is where you want to be. And, you know, I think there's nothing that speaks more volume uh, on a guided hunt than references, you know, mm -hmm. and, and does the guy have people that you can call? And, and I'm not talking about like two guys. I'm talking about like, does he have a list of 30 or 40 or 50 or a hundred people that you can call and don't just call the first name on the list, go down about six and call that guy and go down about 14 and call that guy and mm -hmm. go down about 22 and call that guy. And you can get a real good sense, uh, pretty quick if the person you're going with is the real deal, I, I, I feel like a lot of these bad stories that we hear about are literally a lot of times the hunter's fault in that they set the hunt up in a bad way. And, you know, they're trying to make someone something that they're not. And, you know, they're, 
they're they're going the cheap route. I think a lot of times, whether it be fishing or hunting, you know, call references. Um, make sure you talk to people that have actually been with the the actual guide you're going with. And if you do that, you're probably going to circumvent a lot of issues by talking to you know five, six, seven, ten guys that are like. Yeah, I hunted with Joe Blow, and he's phenomenal, and he'll do, you know, work his butt off for you. You know, if a guy provides you a list of references and it's three people long, there's an issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, and 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 granted, I I started, uh, you know, new myself um, in the business, and so didn't have a long list of references like I do now. But um, at least if the person's honest and says, "Listen, I've only been guiding a year, but here's two guys that I have taken." Call and talk to them and say, how you know, how does this person react uh, when things aren't going well? How does this person act, you know, in front of other hunters? How does this person act, you know, is he professional? How does he treat, you know, how does he treat people uh, walking by and and you know on on horseback on you know other other outfitters and you know you can with with good questions you can in about 15 minutes, get a really good sense of who you're going to go with. And so I would say references is number one. And, you know, like I tell, I get a lot of questions from young guides and I say, listen, just because you're a great hunter does not make you a great guide. It's actually far from it. (laughs) There's a lot of things you have to be good at in order to be a good guide. And one of them is you have to have the ability to listen. Um, You know, you have to have the ability to react to things that don't go your way and not throw a tantrum and you know you have to be professional and you know so i I try and mentor as many young guys as i can that send me messages about you know well i had this hunter and he was doing this and this i said listen you're the guide you're in control you have to explain and communicate with that hunter if there's things that he's doing that's killing his opportunity you don't go back to camp and tell the other guides behind his back you take them aside and say listen you know moving your head up and down and all around when that bull's coming in is killing us. You're, that bull is seeing you. Mm-hmm. This is between you and me, but you've got to stop moving. Sometimes as a guide, you have to take the bull by the horns a little bit and say, listen, you know, you're, that, that cast you're making is, is killing us every time. You know, you have to be a little bit more diligent on your cast or, you know, elk hunting, you, you know, you have to pick your position where you're going to set up when that bull is coming in. And when that bull is coming in, you've got to, you know, be very, very still and let that elk walk by you before you, you know, go to draw your bow. And, um, you know, I, I think if people would communicate, you know, guides, hunters would communicate with each other more, uh, that a lot of these situations would be avoided. Yeah. So, you know, you get, you get your good references and you, um, you feel like that the guide that you've, you have contacted is a good guide and you, you're going to choose him for your hunt. What, um, let's talk a little bit about what questions you might ask the guide before your trip. And then also, um, like talk about hunter etiquette as well. And, you know, Cause I know, I know I grew up around a, my dad owns a fishing lodge on Lake Fork bass fishing. And so we had a lot of guides in over the years. And I know that a lot of those guides have plenty of stories where the dude that hardly fishes at all is like, why don't we go over there and fish? And it's like, well, because I've never seen anybody catch a fish over there in 26 <laughs> years that I've been fishing this lake. You know, it's kind of like, sometimes you get that aspect as well from the hunter. So maybe talk about like, like I said, the questions that you might ask your guide going into the hunt, 
um, how often maybe you should contact him ahead of ahead of time and when, and then also a little bit of etiquette for the hunter. Yeah, I think the questions you need to ask are, how long have you been guiding in the area that we're going to be hunting? Um, have you had successful trips and unsuccessful trips? How much scouting do you plan on doing before the hunt? How well, you know, how well do you know that area? How well do you know the animal that we're hunting? Um, you know, do you have any time commitments that are going to make you want to, you know, get in and get out? Are you in it to win it? You know, are, are, are you in this hunt? Are you dedicated to this hunt the entire time, whether it's a, you know, five day hunt, seven day hunt, 10 day hunt, 14 day hunt, you know, questions of, of, you know, do you have any family commitments or responsibilities that, you know, three days in, you're going to be trying to get me to shoot something because, you know, you, you, you've got something to do with your wife or your kids or, you know, a lot of times if the guide's totally nervous, he's like, I've got the 14 day, but on the fourth day of the hunt, I have to be at my, you know, kid's dance recital. Just tell them, you know, communicate that and say, listen, I'm going to give you 14 days of, you know, the best hunt you've ever had, but I have to leave midday on that one day and I'll be back that night. Those things can be, you know, totally circumvented if you have good communication and, mm-hmm. and, and, Instead of the guide getting all uptight and the, the hunter going, well, why is he up so uptight? If he would have just said, hey, at noon, I've got to run into town. I'll be back. You know, probably everything's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a big thing is how many hunts have you done in this particular unit or on this property or or in this, you know, specific area? You know, how much experience do you have? And, you know, and if the outfitter doesn't want you to talk to the guy right there, that's, that's a red flag to me. Mm-hmm. That's a red flag because uh, that's the outfitter trying to hide something. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, you, you don't want situations like that. So, you know, if the outfitter's being funny and won't let you talk to the guy, that's a serious red flag. Uh, but, you know, it all comes down to experience in the field. Uh, with that particular animal in that particular area and how successful have you been? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if you get the story, I mean, right away, red flags will go up if you talk to the guy and he's like, yeah, I've been guiding in here 10 years, but I've yet to kill a bull. My guys just can't shoot. They can't hit anything. Well, that throws up a red flag of, (laughs) hey, the guide did not put the hunter in a good enough position to succeed. Mm -hmm. And that's your, your number one job as a guide is, to put the hunter in a situation where they can succeed. If they miss the shot, it's the guide's fault as well. I'm a firm believer. And and I've had people miss, you know, 15-yard shots that are standing still. But the reality is I've missed those myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guides, you know, when you're talking to these guides, you have to get the sense of, you know, is this, is this person an egomaniac? Is this person, you know, is this person genuine? Is he real? You know, is he truly invested in my hunt and and want the success for me? Because if 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 they're not, I want to get someone that's that's fully invested and you know truly wants to see me succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, it, as far as etiquette, uh, do you mean etiquette with uh, guides with other guides or? or Fill me in on that a little bit. No, sure. Like more like um, as a hunter, how you should act towards your guide, you know, because okay. like I said, I was yeah. on that sheep hunt and I got to observe that as a, you know, a third party. And it was, it was refreshing to see how much the hunter that I was filming trusted our guide to do his job when, you know, we were slow to move on sheep and stuff like that. So, yeah. And so, 
you know, you've hired, you've spent the money and you've hired the guide to be the guide. And, you know, over my 20s, you know, now was probably close to 30 years of, you know, guiding, there have been some circumstances where I've literally had to step in and say, listen, you paid me for my expertise. So you need to let me do my job. And if you don't want to let me do my job, then, you know, we can, I can just take you back. And, you know, I've had to have some pretty frank conversations of very few, but a few, you know, several. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and ev- once we've had that conversation, everything's gone great. You don't want to guide the guide. You've hired that person because you have felt that that person knows more than you. The last thing you want to do as a hunter is show up and start directing traffic and telling the guide what to do. You're not going to agree with your guide at all times, but you have spent the money and you've done the research and said, this is the guy that I'm going to put my faith in. You've got to put your faith in him. The worst thing you can do with a guide or an outfitter is start second guessing them and, and having a bad attitude and, you know, walking slowly and pouting and getting your lip out. And, you know, there's been times when I've guided where I've made a huge mistake and we've, you know, moved when we shouldn't have moved and blown the whole thing. And a a, a good guide is a guy that's the first guy to say, I screwed that up, but guess what? It's not going to happen very much. And just trust me, we're going to get into them again and I'm going to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, you definitely don't want to guide the guide. You definitely want to trust the guide. Um, and that's where a lot of these beefs come in where, you know, you've got hunters that think they're better than they are. You've got hunters that think that, uh, you know, they know more than they do. And that's where, you know, the rub can be. And, and I, I try and when I'm going to guide someone, I try and ask questions as well to make sure that I'm not getting into a situation where someone's going to come in and tell me, how to do things because Mm -hmm. that's they're hiring me for my expertise, not to tell me how to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, you are a God and you've done plenty of stuff and I'm, I know you've seen plenty of, of people who come in and are successful as being clients and who are complete failures and everything in between. Um, are there things you like to see as a guy that somebody shows up as, and you know, maybe they show up and they're, they're in good shape or, or maybe they show up and they yeah. have good boots or they have the right type of arrow and broadhead set up, you know, uh, you know, what, what does that look like? I like a guy that comes in that, that says, you know, the hunt is the, the, the end result of this hunt, you know, the size of the animal or certain this, that, or the other doesn't dictate how my hunt's going to go. I like a guy that comes in, and when I go on guided hunts myself, when I'm the hunter and I'm going on a guided hunt, I try and be the guy that's always there, that is, you know, helping out, has a good attitude, has a smile when things aren't going right, can crack a joke and lighten the mood. Um, and because let's face it, a lot of times on these 14-day hunts, it's not always going to go great, and it, a lot of times it's a grind. And and you know, the best guys that I've guided are the guys that. You know, when we all know that we both made a huge mistake, we just smile, laugh, and say, let's get them the next time. (laughs) Um, The worst scenario Mm -hmm. is, you know, a guy that's just, you know, gets his dauber in the dirt and spouting and walking slow and, you know, being short and not answering you. And, you know, you ask him, well, you know, what happened? He's, you know, just a bad attitude. The, The best thing you can do as a hunter is show up with a great attitude, show up in shape. 
uh, know your equipment and, and be ready for the circumstances and smell the roses a little bit. I think, uh, you know, a lot of these hunts, you know, they're, whether they be high dollar hunts that you're, you know, you drew a great tag and a great unit and the pressure is so great that you forget to have a good time and you forget to just enjoy all the little things about a hunt. And, you know, I'm, I'm a guy who, when I hunt personally, I love to kill big animals. I love to kill the biggest, baddest, most mature, just biggest animal that walks. And, and I do it with great intensity, but I also like to have fun. And I also like to just, um, you know, try and have a good time and enjoy all of the grind of that hunt because, you know, We've all had hunts where you go out and you shoot the big giant on the first day, and we've had them where you go out and shoot them on the 14th day and had a ton of them where you don't get anything at all. Mm -hmm. um, so I look at hunting more as not the end result, uh, more as just the adventure and, and the excitement. You know, a, a good example, in 2018, I, I bought a hunt, uh, my first personal sheep hunt in the Northwest Territories at Arctic Red. Um, we did 67 miles in nine days, uh, 19 rams, and I never pulled the trigger. Ooh. Um, didn't, didn't see a 10 year old plus ram. That's what they like to kill there. And, um, you know, I chose not to, not to, not to shoot one. And, you know, that's a lot of money. And most guys would say, you know, I'm coming home with something regardless, you know, the last day I'm shooting, whatever. That's just never been me. I've never been one of those guys that want to just get something to get something to prove that, oh, I can, you know, and I think yeah. that's one thing I see going around these days. It's, it's kind of disheartening is that people have to shoot something in order to prove that they can do it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when you mature as a hunter enough, you kind of get over the point that, you know, getting a big animal is, is the, we all want one. But it's not always going to happen. Um, you know, in a couple weeks later, I had drawn a tag. Ironically, I'd already bought a tag in Northwest, Northwest Territories. And wouldn't you know it, I find out that I drew a tag in Alaska in the Chugach <laughs> and uh, went up there and had, you know, a similar grind of a hunt and got an 11-year-old, you know, big broom, double roomer ram. And, you know, people ask me, well, obviously you liked the alaska hunt way better i said no they were both fantastic and i'm glad i went on both and you know not getting one the first trip it, it you know i still had an unbelievable time i would go back in a, in a heartbeat and you know i remember as much about that hunt as i do the one where i got the big old giant ram mm -hmm. yeah yeah you know that's awesome stuff and it's cool that you can uh, after having years and years of experience being a guide, you can still go and be the hunter and, and be guided. You know, that takes a lot of maturity. So uh, it's, you know, kudos to you to be able to, to still do a, a thing like that. Mm -hmm. you well, know, I think when, when we as hunters and, and as guides and as people, human beings in general, when we stop learning and when we start, start thinking that we know everything, uh, that's when it's a real slippery slope. I mean, there's not a time that I don't go out fishing or hunting, go out in the outdoors that I love going with other people, seeing how they do things, seeing how they tie their knots and seeing how they, you know, row their boat and see how they, you know, do their different things and that I learn. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think the second that you get the attitude that you know everything and you don't, you know, you can't, I can learn something from literally anybody. I can learn something that's been fishing for, for a month and i can learn someone that's been hunting for a month you can always learn something from someone yeah yeah that's a huge point man so on that note you know you've seen a lot of equipment in your day i'm sure 
you know, guys coming in with every new cool gadget or whatever. Uh, mostly, I'm an archery elk hunter. That's all I've ever really done. You know, I'm not that I'm against rifle stuff or whatever. But uh, through the years, I've had different experiences with different things, and it's really led me to shoot, uh, you know, heavy arrows, heavy broadheads. I'm using the day six stuff right now and really, really like that stuff. Uh, you know, and that seems to be the most effective on elk. But kind of as the the broader concept, like, have you seen that there there are different types of equipment that do work better in those scenarios, or uh, is it always fool's gold when the next greatest and coolest new thing comes out when it comes to you know equipment? Well, I'm one of these guys. I'm always very very leery of the guy that has to have all of the new technology, all of the new stuff. And it's all about, you know, I grew up skiing since I was two years old skiing. And, um, you know, I was learned very early on that, you know, the kids with the brand new skis and the brand new poles and the, you know, new Bogner outfits and looking all, you know, Obermeyer this and that, (laughs) they're not the greatest skiers. I mean, Uh a lot of times when, you know, I, I played golf, uh, you know, uh, competitively played in college. I mean, I would go out on the course. I love to play, you know, for dollar bills and, you know, a couple dollar Nassau here and there. I loved it. I love competition. And I'd always look around and I'd see, and I'd think, okay, and I can beat that guy. And I don't even, I've never even seen him play. <laughs> and then I see the guy with the, with the old bag and kind of the clubs that are worn and, you know, he's kind of got his hat on sideways and, you know, his shirt's not a new one. And I'd be like, watch out for that guy. <laughs> and it's just, it's the same thing with hunting. It's the same thing with fishing, you know, nothing against, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in technology. Um, but I'm a firm believer that it's, you know, it's, it's the, it's the guy behind the bow. Um, it's the guy behind the rifle. It's, you know, the guy that's underneath the pack, um, more than the, the shiny pack or the fancy bow or the, fancy arrows um mm-hmm. and you know the, i'm not a huge tinkerer my my hunting partner dar loves to tinker with you know reloading and he's constantly messing with different arrows and and fletchings and you know doing all that different stuff and that's great and there's but i think to a certain extent you've got to watch and you know there's guys that love hunting because they just love all the preparation and then when it comes to the hunt after about three days they're ready to go home and you know, they, they've spent three months doing all the prep work and that's fine too. Yeah. Um, it's, everybody's got their own reason that they do things, but, um, you know, I, I always take technology and I, I need to prove it out. I need to make sure that it's better than what I'm using. Um, whether it be fly rods or reels or, you know, a good example is, you know, I've been fishing, uh, fly fishing for a long, long time. And, uh, I, I'm still fishing a Sage, two-ish Sage XPs, a four-weight and a five-weight. You know, they're 15, almost 20 years old, and I fish them great. I cast them yeah. fine, and, and you know, I could go out and spend, you know, $1,500 on a brand-new Sage rod every year. That's, in my opinion, not necessarily going to make me that much better of a fisherman. Um, so with that being said... I love great equipment. I love great optics. I love, you know, when it comes to finding animals, I love using a lot of the new technologies and a lot of the new equipment. Um, but I caution people, especially in archery, um, you know, 
I would rather have a guy that's got a three-year-old bow that knows exactly how it shoots and he shoots it well under pressure than some guy that's just got a, you know, he's been shooting a bow all summer and then a new one comes out and he gets it two weeks before the hunt and he's got no idea where it's going to hit. Jay, you probably know some of those bow companies better than we do. Can you please tell them to stop releasing bows during hunting season? Because it's (laughs) super stupid. (laughs) You know, I think with all that being said, though, as a consumer, you know, whether we're talking bows or or you know golf clubs or tennis rackets or you know skis it's a phenomenal time to be con- be a consumer because there's a lot of great companies that are really pushing the envelope and pushing each other uh-huh. and you know being able to have choices as a consumer you know 50 years ago they didn't have near the choices that that, that we do now and um so I, I encourage people to take advantage of new stuff and take advantage of technology just make sure you prove it out before you, you know, you, you think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, there's nothing like shooting under pressure. There's nothing like, you know, making it count when, when, when the pressure's on. And if you can, great. Um, but I encourage you to use the equipment that you feel comfortable with and that you have faith in. Mm-hmm. I would much rather be guiding someone that's, you know, got a 30 year old rifle and shot it a lot and knows exactly what it's going to do than someone that's been tinkering around and, you know, you know, he shows up for the hunt and he's shooting flyers all over at a hundred yards. <laughs> and you're just like, Oh my gosh. I mean, I would rather have the guy with the beat up scope and the beat up rifle and, you know, the beat up backpack and he lays down and you're like, this thing, this guy's going to shoot, you know, tax. I mean, this is a done deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Hey, why, why are we like blessed with the most technology ever and like the greatest, you know, and latest stuff? Like, I mean, crap, we have handheld maps like Onyx and stuff like that now. And, and, you know, you can look at all these harvest statistics and all that, but why, why do the statistics not really go up that much? Why is it still, why are elk still just as good at getting away from us as they've always been? Well, I just think they have that big of an advantage. I think they're just, you know, a wild animal is a wild animal. And no matter how much equipment and technology you have, um, you know, the elk still seem to reign supreme. And that's just the beauty of it. I mean, I think if it was easier, I think it would not be as fun of a sport as it is. And, you know, I think a lot of the calls have come a long ways and, you know, obviously the binoculars and the tripods and to be able to be able to spot them from a long ways off and be able to kind of keep your eye on them comfortably. Um, you know, that's all made us better. Uh, but again, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to, you can have all the greatest gadgets in the world, but if, if you don't know how to use them and you don't, you know, use your time efficiently and, you know, I'm a huge proponent of making stocks on animals that have a high probability. And I think a lot of people have all this new fan, fan dangled equipment and just think they can plow in there. And, you know, an elk's nose is still never going to never going to deceive them. Yeah. And you still have to do things right, uh, no matter what equipment you have. And, um, you know, I, I, I think the technology is just going to continue to get better. I think we're going to have better equipment, better uh, you know, better chances to, to use equipment that's going to make us better. But I still think we got to go back to being as efficient as we can and, and go for high probability um, opportunities. Um, you know, much like a fish, you know, laying out their big 22, 23 inch brown trout, you know, at the end of the run, just sipping dry flies, 
you can't just go flying in there and throw it a foot from his face and have him eat it. He will every once in a while, but you might want to sit there and watch him a while, figure out exactly what he's eating and then wait for him to get in a position in the pool where you can make one cast and catch him. And that's a lot of how I look at, you know, calling in bulls and, and, you know, with, with elk specifically is make sure that you don't go after them. If you're not in a high probability, you've got to play the odds and they've got to be in a high percentage. You don't want to take a stab at them unless it's a high percentage opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Wise words, man, for mm-hmm. sure. Hey, are you going to be the trigger man any of this fall? Uh, you know, I didn't draw any tags. I thought I was going to draw. I had 19 points in Arizona. I thought I was going to draw uh, the, the the Arizona Strip 13B for mule deer. I had about a 54% chance to draw. My wife's like, well, 54%, that's like either you do or you don't. I'm like, well, percentage-wise, I had a 54% chance to draw. Next year, I should be 100%. I did not draw that. And um, of, of all the hunts, I may hunt a Mexico coos deer. Uh, depending on how all of my other hunts and stuff stack up as far as guiding, but uh, probably another year for me of, of, of just guiding. I've got a lot of points in Arizona for uh, archery elk. I think I have 18, I think, as a resident, so I'm uh, pretty much going to be able to draw any elk tag I want here in the next couple of years, so I'm just trying to pick Ooh. the right year and the right opportunity <laughs> so yeah yeah that sounds pretty awesome man are there still some uh, open spots for to do some coos or some goulds hunting with you down there this year so my goulds turkey for 2021 are completely booked um much of my 2020 season because of covid19 we were able to kill 17 birds but we were scheduled to shoot 75 and so most of those hunters got pushed to 2021. So as, as ghouls, I'm pretty well booked. I do uh, have the opportunity for a few more cooster hunts if guys uh, didn't draw anything and want to go on a January cooster hunt uh, for sure. And I'm already booking for 2022 for uh, ghouls turkey as yeah. well. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, uh, guys, if you didn't know already, the J. Scott Outdoors podcast is probably the most comprehensive and best place to learn anything you want to know about Western outdoor stuff. So, Jay, thank you so much for all the information that you've Mm -hmm. shared with us through the years, man, Uh, and especially in this podcast. Uh, Like like always, your wealth of knowledge, and uh, just can't thank you enough, man. Well, I appreciate you guys thinking of me and uh, having me on, and uh, wish you the best of success with uh, your podcast. I'm glad to see it's going great. And um, it's always great to have uh, great podcasts out there and, and getting lots of good information passed around. So kudos to you guys for keeping things going and having the success that you are. And uh, again, yeah, thanks for having me on and God bless both of you. Sounds thanks, good, Jay. brother. Well, have a good season, man. Okay, guys, take care. Now that was some killer info. Don't forget to subscribe and a five-star review means a ton to us. Remember, this is your element. Living it. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. 
I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.